Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week on Movable Dough, I sit down with a composer to talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and, of course, their music. Come with me as we explore each unique path into composition and what they have to share with the world. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Juhi Bansal. Juhi is an Indian composer who is brought up in Hong Kong and draws subtly upon both traditions in her own music. Her music draws upon elements as disparate as Hindustani music, the spectralists, progressive metal, musical theater, and choral traditions. Her music is regularly performed throughout the U.S., Europe, and Asia, and is available on the Naxos, Albany, and Roven Records labels. Juhi has received awards for her work from the Five Colleges New Music Festival Competition, Boston Metro Opera International Composers Competition, and multiple ASCAP Morton Gold Young Composer Awards. She was recently listed in the Washington Post as a composer to watch. Juhi Bansal, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Steve. So I sort of went by this pretty quick in your bio, but I want to return to your being raised in Hong Kong. So how long did you live there? Uh, 11 years total, I want to say. Okay. And did you start your musical training there as well? I did. So I kind of had a weird upbringing. And I think this is part and parcel of what you're asking about. Yeah. Um, my mom used to work for Hindustani classical radio when we still lived in India. Okay. So I was kind of surrounded by the sounds of that style of music as a child and, uh, you know, singing in choirs and things as a kid. And I started my formal Western classical education in Hong Kong. That was, I started studying piano and violin and arhu because it was Hong Kong. Um, okay. So a lot of different things. So it's been kind of this weird journey that where, yes, most of my Western classical training, uh, the earliest stages was focused in Hong Kong, but there were a lot of other bits and pieces floating around that kind of went into it. Yeah. So what other, what other sort of non-Western training were you receiving? Um, so Hindustani music is a big one. Um, as I mentioned, my mom used to, she was a radio host actually for Hindustani classical radio. So we used to go to a lot of concerts, meet a lot of musicians, um, kind of very involved in that style. And then in Hong Kong, of course, studying classical music also meant, you know, there was a Western orchestra at school and it was a Chinese orchestra. So I started studying Arhu, which is the two string yeah. um, instrument, uh, string instrument in Chinese culture. It's an incredible instrument. I love the sound first and then kind of for a while was playing that and violin side by side. So kind of two different um, elements of string music were sure. kind of also feeding in. Do you ever get a chance I, to use any of that in in your current compositions? Uh, actually, a fair amount. So there's an opera I'm working on right now for the Prototype Festival, which one of the reasons I'm really excited about it is that it's kind of a weird synthesis of all of this. So it's Western instruments, but drawing a lot on the sound of the Arhu specifically. And then the vocal writing is for Western soprano, but drawing a lot on Hindustani vocal tradition as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, so there's a cool mix between east and west <laughs> i think that's fair <laughs> to say i mean you know so much of whatever your journey is as a person winds up in your music for me that happens to be a little bit of east and west yeah so when did you actually start writing music uh it's kind of a 
it's a bit of a strange story. I started officially writing music when I entered USC as an undergraduate composer. Okay. Um, one of the weird things about my my musical upbringing was that you know I was in Hong Kong, and I, I knew I was interested in writing music because every time I'd get my hands on the piano, I just I wanted to create something that was my own, you know. So I started with a lot of just doodling and improvising and writing pieces. I say in quotation marks, just coming up with songs and not writing a note down on the page. And I somehow I was looking at colleges when I was 15 or 16. I was like, wow, they have music composition programs. That sounds exciting. And being utterly clueless about what that actually meant, I looked <laughs> on the website and they're like, you need a portfolio of three pieces of different styles. And I had no idea what I was doing. I just like tried to notate and painstakingly. It must have taken weeks to get down a piece on the page. Um, and it was all handwritten because I didn't know about music notation software and yeah. recorded these things on mini discs and sent them off. And to this day, I am convinced it was some sort of an accident that I got into that program. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Because the first official piece was, you know, it, it was everything. When I started as an undergrad, it was learning what, no, like learning to create notation. It was learning that there's software to do it. It was learning a lot of the rules and parameters about how to properly write something down. Um, so a very steep learning curve as a young student. <laughs> <laughs> so I was interested in what I read online about the New Lens concert series that you helped found. Sure. Uh, could you tell our listeners more about that product, project and what the purpose was? Yeah, so it started with another composer friend a long time ago, uh, Garrett Schatzer. And we were, at the time, both students and composition students and thinking about some of the expectations that make people not so interested in new music. And I think a lot of, you know, there's baggage with new music. People all have a sense of it's probably going to sound like blank. And that even what that blank is might be different for different people. But there's, it might be too thorny for me, or it might be too out there for me, or it might be too classical sounding for me, or, you know, there are a hundred different versions of what people think. So we have this idea about why don't we bring people into concerts with a theme or a concept or something, and we're going to mix old and new. So traditional repertoire side by side with new repertoire, and we're going to redact the programs so that you know something about the piece before you listen, but you don't know the name, you don't know the composer, and you don't know the year it was written. Uh huh. And after each piece is performed, there was kind of a reveal about what the music actually was. And it was really interesting because we had a lot of people telling us afterwards that it was what we had hoped and that you listen to it with an open mind because you just don't know what's coming. And afterwards, love or hate it, you now you won't know what it was that you listened to. Okay, so that's the new lens. That you're that you're looking through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is this still an ongoing project that you're doing? No, we did stop a number of years ago before the pandemic. Um, okay. Both of us just had so many other things going on, but it was an it was a really exciting project while we did it. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool project. I like that a lot. So I mentioned in your bio at the beginning of the show, you combine many elements from a wide range of musical styles. So. Were you listening to all those different styles as you grew up, or are they genres you've been exposed to over time? Um, many of them I was listening to while I was growing up. You know, we were talking about Hong right. Kong, and I remember it, it was such an interesting thing because my parents would set Hindustani classical music as the alarm clock. So that's what I would wake up to first thing in the morning. And then you take the public bus to school, and it's canto pop. 
and so every once in a while like some traditional folk music and then at school we go to like the western choir and then chinese orchestra and you kind of repeat it coming back home um so there was a lot of like different sounds in my ear anyway but some of the things like progressive metal is something i got more interested in um later on this was after i moved to the states and spectralism was something i discovered after you know during my compositional studies that i just thought was really fascinating and what about musical theater? I'm I'm interested in musical theater myself. Is there a, a show that resonates with you? Like, this is my favorite show. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I'm a Sondheim fan. Uh-huh. I don't know if I could pick any one single show, but I'm a huge <laughs> Sondheim fan. Well, he, he's definitely a good one to pick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So on your, on your website, you mentioned that one of the themes that you focus on in composition is strong female role models. Mm-hmm. So who are some of the role models that have inspired you? Oh, gosh, that is such a huge question. Um, most recently, so I wrote a, I was commissioned to write a set of songs for Songfest. And I had been thinking at the time about Afghanistan a lot, mm-hmm. because it was in the news and the US was leaving. And I wanted to do something that was kind of somehow about the voices of Afghan women. And I found there this incredible tradition of poetry from the Pashtun culture. And what it is, is it's oral poetry, usually in two lines, that is spoken by Afghan women. And it was fascinating to me because when you look at these poems, they're on all these themes that are not normally part of the culture. So if I give an example, women, girls there are married away when they're 12, 13, 14 years old, usually to much older men. And it was fascinating because the poems then that these girls and women speak they're about love, they're about erotic desire, they're about self-actualization, all these things that feel weirdly at odds with what the culture is. Hmm. But in this poetry, it's just their voices totally unfiltered. Some of it's shocking, I think, in a really, like, really vibrant way, some of this poetry. So that was kind of a big one. And that's an ongoing project for me to set um, texts by Afghan women that are, they're called Lundays, these types of poems. Um, Another one prior to that was, uh, it was an opera commissioned by LA Opera for their youth and opera program. Mm -hmm. And a librettist I work with, uh, we had first started doing some projects about Charles Babbage, who was um, in the 19th century, this real pioneer, first guy who dreamt up the idea of a programmable computer. And through Neil Aitken, who's my librettist, I came to know about Ada Lovelace, who is this incredible figure she was in, I hope I'm not wrong about the decade, I believe it was the 1830s in London, a 17-year-old prodigy in math, basically. She started working with Charles Babbage, and now she's now known, not known enough, but known for writing the first algorithm. Mm. Like, literally the first algorithm in the world is published in one of her um, letters, I believe. And it's so fascinating because at the time, you know, she was already a pioneer and being a 17 year old working on these projects but nothing that was just a paper by her was published what was published was her letters and translations of other male mathematicians uh-huh. and one of them continued like at the end there's the actual translation which is a few pages long and then this huge massive paper afterwards that are her own thoughts about what it means and the algorithm is part of this yeah um, so that was also a story that was really fascinating to me um particularly thinking about getting girls involved in STEM subjects. Right. Yeah, that I don't think that's a story that I've heard before. <laughs> Ada Lovelace yeah. is amazing. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look up more about her. 
So in addition to being a composer, you're also an accomplished conductor. So how do you think your work as a composer influences your work as a conductor or vice versa? That's a fabulous question. Uh, lately, I am composing more and more and conducting sadly less and less. Um, so I think there's, you know, probably my experience as a conductor informs more my work as a composer. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is sort of, you know, when you are in that role of conductor, you're very involved in the tiny details. How does this thing feel for a singer? How the, the, this thing that's on the page, how does it feel? How does it feel on the instrument if it's an instrument? Do you need to change something about how you interpret what's on the page to make it really vibrant and come to life, you know, and those kind of details. So I think one of the things that makes me do as a composer is really think in a very careful way about what I'm asking an individual musician to do. Uh -huh. Because so much of our work as a composer is just kind of big picture stuff. This is the overarching sound I want. This is the effect I want. This is what the whole thing's going to sound like. As a conductor, you almost have to work in from the opposite end. You're starting in the really <laughs> small details of like the human person in the chair with the music in front of right. them. What does that mean? Um, so I, I do think very deliberately about what am I asking a person to do? Is this comfortable? Is this, would it be nice for them to have a little more break? Would it be nice for them to have a little bit of a cue? Have they been playing in this register or singing in this register too long? Just that kind of thing. Yeah, I like that perspective, the outside in versus the inside out. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a great way to think about that. So here's a question doesn't necessarily have to do with music at all, or it might. What is your favorite job that you've ever held? That's a good question. I have to think about it. Um, <laughs> the most exciting job I had, I was a knife fighting instructor for a, a while. A knife fighting instructor. <laughs> How did that happen? Um, it's all my mother's fault. <laughs> when I was a teenager in Hong Kong, my mom had two things that she said her kids just had to do. One was martial arts and one was music. And these were both because they were things she had wanted to do. And, you know, at the time she was living in a very, very conservative um, Muslim household with her grandparents in Hong Kong. So she wasn't allowed to. So when she had kids, she's like, you turn 12, you have to do a martial art and you have to get involved in music. And I, I was honestly, at the moment, not interested in either one. You, you <laughs> do things sometimes because your parents tell you to. And of course, I fell head over heels in love with both of them. So martial arts was side by side with music, a huge part of my life until my early 30s. Um, my fighting was one of the areas I trained in and for a while was teaching in. Wow. <laughs> that, that's not the answer I usually get to that question. <laughs> <laughs> And then conversely, what is your least favorite job you've ever had? Um, oh, that's a good question also. You know, I don't think I've had a single job that I hated. I would say I was a teacher for a long time in academic institutions. There were parts of that job that were incredibly frustrating where I felt like they got in the way of me actually teaching students <laughs> and doing what I needed to do with students. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> All right. Well, before we take a quick break to listen to some of your music, I'm going to ask you to play a quick game that this week we're calling Sing Me a Lullaby. I'm going to ask you a series of five true or false statements about Jean-Baptiste Lully. You're, no. a winner. You're a winner just for playing the game, so just do your best. Okay, true or false? 
Born as Giovanni Battista Lully, he changed his name after he was given French citizenship. Oh my gosh, you know I'm going to be guessing for all of these. Um, yes? That is true, yes. Ding, ding, ding. He spent most of his life living and composing in France. Okay, uh, number two, true or false? Due to the nature of his operas, his works were often described as parties set to music. Yes. It's actually false. They are often more described as tragedies set to music. <laughs> I'm showing my ignorance here. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I didn't know these until I looked them up either. So, all right. Uh, number three, Luli wrote many ballets in which he himself would perform as dancer. True or false? False. It's actually true. Sometimes the king would dance as well. Really? That's really, amazing. Really, yeah. All right. And number four, true or false, at one point, Luli forbade the addition of music to a puppet show. True. It is true. He had many arguments with other composers because of the control that he had over the music in France. And last one, this is the one I did know about him beforehand. True or false, Luli is one of the few composers to actually die from a conducting accident. True. It is true. In 1687, he stabbed himself in the toe with his conducting stick. The resulting infection developed gangrene, which spread to the rest of his body and killed him. I do remember that from <laughs> history class. All right. Well, you did a fantastic job on this quiz. Thank you for playing. And after a quick break, we'll come back and listen to some of Juhi's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Juhi Bansel. So we're going to talk first today about waves of change. This is an unlikely pairing of opera and surfing. Inspired by the girls of the Bangladesh Surf Club, this piece was written for a virtual performance during the pandemic. This is a truly remarkable story that I'd like you to tell us more about. Absolutely. So the Bangladesh Girls Surf Club, which has since actually been absorbed into a larger organization, started as the Bangladesh Girls Surf Club. Um, the story is that in Cox Bazaar, which is the longest uninterrupted stretch of beach in the world, 300 something miles, and also, of course, one of the poorest parts of the world, it's the poorest part of Bangladesh, um, there was one lifeguard, a local lifeguard, who had gotten aboard from an Australian surfer at some point, taught himself to surf. And some of the girls in this community, one in particular, I think she was four years old, walking along on the beach one day and she saw Rashad surfing and asked him to teach her to surf and just to put this in context this is a very conservative extremely um, traditional muslim community girls are married away 12 to 14 years of age they're not allowed to go to school and it's also because of all the poverty the girls in this area usually are selling trinkets on the beach all day so the girl lived it was joanna who first asked Rashad to teach her to surf. Uh, she was selling eggs on the beach that day. And didn't you say that the girls weren't even allowed to go in the water? Yeah, so that is, uh, there's actually, there's a number of documentaries about these girls once they started surfing. So it started with Joanna, and then a number of girls started learning from Rashad, and they formed um, Rashad and his wife, Vanessa, who started the surf club. They would insist that the girls have schooling as well. So it turned into this big thing where they would teach the girls to surf. There was schooling as part of it. There was food aid to the parents so that they could afford for the girls not to be working. And once these girls started getting really serious about it, there was a big pushback from, from a lot of the more traditional community because girls in that culture don't even enter the ocean. So this idea that these girls are not getting married, continuing to go to school, and now surfing is just 
I mean, it was ridiculous to them. It was ridiculous to a lot of people. So there's a couple of documentaries about the club. And I mean, you can see there's fistfights over, there's people physically stopping the girls from going. There were a number wow. of incidents where their equipment was stolen. Um, and it was a story that really fascinated me because for these girls, this idea of surfing became something so much bigger than surfing. It's being able to choose what you want to do with your life. It's access to an education. Some of the girls were um, thinking about, you know, graduating high school and going on to college, becoming doctors, becoming teachers. It, like surf and the ocean became an emblem for something so much larger. Mm. That's cool. So how did the how did the composition come about? Were you approached as a, a commission on this? Yeah, so I had known about the, the group for a while. And uh, actually, the founder, Rashid, he and his wife live part time in Santa Cruz. So I met them when they were here okay. doing some fundraising and volunteering with their fundraising. And this commission opportunity came along from the prototype festival during COVID um, when everything was switching digital. And they wanted a short piece on the theme of identity. And I was thinking about what identity meant to me. And I, I maybe just as a personal thing, I didn't want it to be about me. I, I, would, I had these girls' story in the back of my mind. And from what I knew about it, there was just this really tense clash of cultures in their story, mm -hmm. right? There's women wanting to choose, girls wanting to choose something for themselves, which I just think is such a powerful thing. And then there's this weird element of like, there's poverty, there's this weird culture clash between Western surf culture, and then this very traditional version of Islam yeah. that doesn't see that as what girls should be doing. So I just, I was thinking about identity and I'm like, this is a crisis of identity, which I think is incredibly powerful. And I wanted to write about that. And so why the certain selection of instrumentation? So cello, soprano extra vocals sure uh the vocal part was what came first with this idea of these girls being you know they are just themselves they're just trying to make choices and caught between these expectations from western surf culture on one side and the traditional um like the local islamic culture so the vocals are representing that there is a western soprano um who's singing kind of in a more folk western style but somewhere straddling the line between classical western and maybe a more folk tone and then there's a hindustani singer singing in bengali which is the local language there and they both sing the same text in different languages with the, mm. kind of trying to create that sense of caught between the two cultures okay all right well we are now going to listen to waves of change and you might have to help me with pronunciation performer ranjana gatak ranjana gatak gatak on bengali voices Catherine schumann on soprano and Timothy Liu on cello.
All right. Our second piece today is In Perfect Light for Acapella Chorus. Uh, part of your cantata, we look to the stars. So this piece is a reflection of finding peace and solace after the loss of a loved one. I understand the idea comes from myths and stories about the night sky. Could you tell us more about this cantata and about this piece in particular? Sure. So the larger concept of this cantata, um, LA Opera had approached me with this idea that they wanted to do something related to the Orpheus legend. At the time, they were premiering a main stage opera by Matthew Alcoyne about the same theme. And, you know, I remember sitting at lunch with Stacey Brightman, who at the time was heading that department, and we were talking about the Lyra constellation, its, its connection to the Orpheus myth. And I was thinking about kind of my connection to Greek legends, which is fairly, it's not a very strong connection. It's not a very deep <laughs> connection because it's, you know, I grew up with Hindu mythology and I grew up learning, thinking about festivals and things to do with the stars. Again, in Hong Kong, I knew more about the Chinese um, kind of version of what the night sky is and what it represents. Oh. And I just thought it would be so fascinating because that's not just my experience at the time. Um, we were going to premiere this piece with Pasadena City College where I was teaching. And that experience of being invested and being deeply rooted in other cultures is true for most of our students as well, many of our students. So I, I took the idea of writing a piece that looked at the constellations in the night sky, but really wanted to bring together things that different cultures mm -hmm. historically and from different places have, have thought about the night sky. And it was a piece that took months and months and months of research i think almost a year of research just on the texts and one of the things i found was that so many different cultures have seen broad themes we talk about love when we look at the night sky so that image of for example looking at a star and hoping that a loved one is looking at the same star that reappears in so many different cultures or the night sky is representing the unknown whether that's and often that is the unknown as in what happens after death that was also a very strong recurrent theme. Um, grief on the loss of a loved one was another theme that came through this. Mm -hmm. And then the last one was this idea of navigating by the stars. Many different cultures have done it in many different ways. Right. So the cantata became pulling together different texts on these, the, on these four themes I just mentioned in a, in a sort of overarching story. And this imperfect light, that's the epilogue from the cantata. And it actually sets a Sarah Williams text from a poem called The Old Astronomer that I just thought was so beautiful because it's it's talking about death as almost a place to find solace. Death itself is a place to find solace. Mm. In her words, um, I have loved the stars too fondly to be fearful of the night. I just thought that was so powerful and so magnificent, and it seemed like the right place to leave off um, with a larger story of the cantata. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds wonderful. We're going to listen now to Imperfect Light, performed by singers from Pasadena City College and Caltech with Roger Guerrero, conductor.
Okay, our third piece today, love, loss, and exile. Sounds a lot like the last piece we listened to. Uh, (laughs) So this is a song cycle for solo voice, cello, and piano. Uh, And this is, I believe, the piece that you were referencing earlier in our interview with these voices from Afghan women. Yes. So I'm I'm curious, how did you come across these poems in the first place? There was an article published, I'm going to get the years wrong, I want to say mid-2000s, mm-hmm. um, by a journalist called Eliza Griswold. This was the first place that I heard about these. She did a number of trips to Afghanistan going and collecting these, uh, collecting and translating, and she has a book that was published that is um, English translations of these Lundays. And that kind of started me down a rabbit hole. Previous to her, there was also a French Afghan um, journalist and writer called Saeed Madru. He had gone through and also done a project in the 70s collecting a number of these lundays. And every once in a while, you'll find in different places, um, often in different languages, because there's there's not really an authoritative collection of these in English. Mm. Um, so it was a lot of research. I had my assistant was fluent in Arabic, helped me look in Arabic as well, which was extremely helpful. (laughs) I bet. So besides the text being connected thematically, did you weave a connecting musical idea through the cycle as well? Absolutely. Um, Hindustani music and Afghan music, uh, specifically music from the Pashtun culture, were, were two things that were in my mind. There's been a lot of, historically, they've certainly diverged since then, but historically there was a lot of influence from Hindustani music into Afghan music. So I felt that was appropriate to bring a little bit of that into it. So you'll hear in the vocal techniques, there's a lot of vocal inflection, a lot of vocal ornamentation that comes from Hindustani style or is informed by Hindustani style. Um, there's also, there are a number of places where you'll hear timbres in the voice that are not at all traditional Western classical timbres. A lot of those are evoking what you hear in Pashtun folk music as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're now going to listen to the third movement of Love, Loss, and Exile, which is called Grief, uh, with Abigail Sinclair on soprano, Yutsin Tang on piano, did I say that name correctly, and Evan Khan cello.
Okay, so we're going to return to the ocean for our last piece, Songs from the Deep for Chamber Orchestra. This piece is a driving sonic soundscape, capturing the wonder of hearing the sounds of humpback whales while diving. So I'd love to hear more, not only about this piece, but maybe some of your experiences diving that inspired this love of the ocean. Uh, sure. I mean, we mentioned surfing earlier. The ocean is sort of a very deep love. Um, and a place <laughs> No pun a intended. <laughs> <laughs> unintentional <laughs> um but i mean of course it's a place so many composers have found inspiration historically right with this piece uh, i think this was just before COVID. i was in mexico um completely unintentional it just happened to be the season when the humpback whales are, are passing through and coming down south and i remember i had gone for a dive and we were seeing humpback whales the whole time as we're taking the boat out but I remember finally went underwater and it was the most incredible thing because you could hear them. Uh -huh. And what was so special to me, because these days we all have access to the recordings, right? You can hear what whale song sounds like recorded through microphones. In the water, you can feel it. Mm. Like it's, it's such a powerful thing to cover the amount of ground it needs to cover it to, to cover that you physically feel these sounds buffeting you in the water. Wow. And there was also something that I found very amazing was that, you know, if, have you dived ever, Steve? I have not. It is this bizarre sensation. I love it, but it's definitely odd. And one of the things that surprised me most on my very first dive was how noisy it is underwater. So water itself makes so much sound, just moving water. Fish feeding is this shockingly loud thing. If divers will know what I'm talking about. If you haven't dived, it's bizarre the first time you go down. Anytime you're above a reef, fish eating is just loud. Mm. And so there was this very strange sense of hearing whale song physically pushed and pulled, but it almost felt like you're hearing it through a screen or a filter of something else of noise. And it was sort of that idea, that, that very concrete sense of songs through noise and then songs emerging out of noise that became the impetus for this piece songs from the deep oh very cool well we are going to listen to an excerpt of this and you will be able to hear these whales i, I love this uh this is an excerpt from songs for the, from the deep by the organ mozart players
Well, Juhi, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Um, a few too many pieces. Uh, <laughs> one that I'm really excited about is in the next month, I have an EP dropping with Ranjana Gattak, the soprano we talked about from um, Waves of Change. She and I started a, it's a community music project, really, asking for people to send us in their stories about inspiring women. Um, because this idea of women's history and how women's stories get lost is, a, is also a big, like a real area of interest to me. So we did a project of music that's tracks of music somewhere between Western classical and Hindustani classical um, on some of the stories that we received. Um, there's that. And then, of course, there's the opera for prototype I'm really excited about. Very cool. And if my listeners want to learn more about you, where are you located online? Um, there is my website, so www.juhibansel.com or Instagram is, um, I'm not very active on social media, but Instagram is the one channel that's a good place to find me. <laughs> is it just Juhibansel on Instagram? Uh, yeah, I should know this. I don't know if it's Juhibansel Music or Juhibansel Composer. It's one of the two. One of the two. We'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, listeners out there, make sure you follow us on social media as well. You can find us on Instagram at Movable Dove Podcast on Twitter at Movable Dough, and on Facebook on the group Movable Dough Listeners. Join the conversation. Comment on your favorite composers, share your favorite music, join us on social media, and help us keep the music moving. Well, Juhi, it has been a pleasure to get to know you today. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to chat. My guest today was composer Juhi Bansel. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. There we go. We did it. Fabulous. And I, you even survived my quiz. <laughs> I really thought I was going to fail <laughs> horribly.